I'm always looking for more uh, donations as well. If someone was interested in that, I could talk to you about that. Uh, especially the end of the year coming up. Giving Tuesday is Tuesday, if you didn't know about that. Talk about that stuff later. I'd rather talk about what's in Matthew 23. So uh, let's make our way to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. This is the gospel according to Matthew, right? Because there's only one gospel. So this is the gospel according to Matthew properly, even though we say it the other way. I did want to give a bit of background. I have a lot of notes here, and um, I think it's just kind of cool to kind of, you know, have a running head start to get to our text in Matthew 23. Um, nothing too crucial for understanding Matthew 23, so I'm just going to run through it. Uh, so don't really um, try to follow too closely along with the, the context here. But really, uh, starting, you know, back in Matthew 21 is where I'm going to kind of get the ball rolling here so we can kind of catch up. Uh, with what's happening, but, uh, you know, the organization of information in these gospel perspectives are actually very important. It's a, it's a part of the teaching method, and so the idea is that not everything was actually in chronological order, per se. Uh, there's lots of information that was left out, uh, so why do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why do they organize their information the way they do? It's very, very intentional. It is not accidental. Uh, it's, you know, of course, with the guiding of the Holy Spirit, right? It's inspired scripture. I, I understand that. But it's very intentional. And so even, that emphasizes it even more. Because <laughs> normal writers would do that. Now, these, are, these, are, these have the inspiration of God. So uh, that's even more intensified. Uh, Matthew's primary focus is the Jewish audience. Each, each gospel perspective has a different focus. Um, they all basically will talk through the same things. Um, you know, pointing out the life of Christ, essentially. Uh, but this is, he really focuses on the Jewish audience and, um, and so goes through a lot of uh, Jewish-ish things. <laughs> That's a tough one to say. Um, I think I just made that word up too, but. Okay, so Matthew 21, the idea here is that you have the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday, uh, a big deal. Zechariah 9.9 talks about the Messiah coming in on uh, this, this uh, donkey and um, uh, showing that he's coming in peace is the idea. He comes in as the Messiah, and of course they're expecting all the rest of the things in Zechariah where he just destroys, obliterates all the enemies, uh, not paying attention to the rest of Scripture. Uh, so then they kind of have this false idea of what's happening there for a lot of them. He, Jesus curses the fig tree later in chapter 21. The idea of the fig tree is that it was supposed to produce fruit. Uh, when a fig tree produces its leaves, it produces the fruit at the same time. So when you see the leaves, you expect fruit. Jesus was hungry. Uh, it would have been satisfying to have this fruit. There was an expectation of there being fruit. He comes up to it and there was no fruit. Uh, it represents Israel in, in that they were supposed to be producing faith, faith in the Messiah. They were supposed to accept him as the promised offspring, the promised Messiah, uh, the God-man that would take away the sin of the world, the, you know, the, all, all those references. Uh, but they did not. And so there was a curse there. It was withered, right? And of course, um, the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants are still true. It's very relevant in current events, right? But it, it, it's, they're still true. Um, and by the way, real quick commercial on that. If the geographical line of Israel were removed in, in this near future, um, God's word would still be true. <laughs> um, is, there, there will always be the people Israel. 
And that's, that's what uh, God promises for sure. And so you never know, we're on a stepping stone to the, the, the world stage here, but I don't know how many stepping stones there are in front of us. It could be the last one. There could be a lot of them. We don't know. And so let's, let's put things in perspective there. But that was just a quick commercial on Corinthians. So uh, I can talk to you more about that later if you want. So then he cleanses the temple. Uh, I believe this would be for the second time. I think he did this early in the beginning of his ministry. And then now we're getting to the Passion Week here. So he cleanses the temple again. He's exposing the religious, religious, religious leadership. There we go. Uh, for their greed, their pride, their corruption, all these things. And uh, he, he curses this fig tree, as I said. Then he shows uh, to us these uh, chief priests, these elders of Israel. They're, they're interpreting, uh, sorry, interrupting this uh, teaching. Uh, they're challenging his authority, and you have these different groups that are challenging his authority, and it goes through all of this uh, in detail. So then what does he do? He ends up telling these uh, three parables, and he starts telling these, uh, these parables quickly. Uh, the two sons, the tenants, uh, the wedding feast, he goes through this uh, later on. Um, this is going through even past our text here. We're running ahead. Um, so he gets into that all of it discourse and things, right? Okay, so let's pause. Let's kind of come back to it. Um, so what's, what's going on? The Pharisees, they're, they're scrambling. Uh, the Sadducees, all these different people, this lawyer, the Pharisees, they're all scrambling to try to show that Christ is not the Christ. Uh, Jesus is not the Messiah. They want to see his wisdom fail. They want to see everything destroyed. Um, this, this cannot be him. Um, and what's really cool is when Jesus puts them to the test with uh, Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, you know, why, why does David call uh, his offspring Lord, right? It, only, it can only be God. And so he goes through all these different things, and that, that's at the end of uh, chapter 22 there. So then we come to chapter 23, our text, uh, kind of a cool, cool stuff. He's really exposing the leadership that is important to know for our context and showing that he is the Messiah. He is establishing himself. I am God. I am the promised Messiah. There is no doubt here. And then as he, uh, people are listening and they see him as an authority, he begins to uh, totally destroy the evil leadership that they have currently. Not all their leadership was corrupt as an individuals, but the whole system was, and largely uh, all, all of them were, largely they were, the ones that had uh, power, uh, religious and political power in Israel. By the way, Pharisees, that was a political party. And uh, they were, so with Israel, politics and religion, they're hand in hand. Uh, so you have to remember that. And, um, and so they were a political party. They had control. They had the majority in the Sanhedrin at the time, which was basically the ruling, kind of like the Supreme Court of Israel, so to speak. Uh, they, they, they had the final word in all things uh, for Israel and the way things should be done. And um, so what, let's, let's get to chapter 23, verse 1 here. Then Jesus said to the crowds, after all of that, and, you know, establishing he is the Messiah, the, the offspring of David and things. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. Now, look, look at the audience here, okay? He's not talking to the Pharisees and scribes. He's talking to the crowds and his disciples. Okay, that's important. Then verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they have that authority, they, they have the authority of, of uh, saying, hey, this is the law, and um, having that you know, religious and political authority, everything Moses had, you think about that, uh, kind of that, that spot where one man Moses took, now you have all these tons of guys, right? 
Uh, it's kind of interesting how that works. But verse 3, so because of this, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. <laughs> so at, at first, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think the Pharisees and scribes are probably, you know, they're sitting up straight, so to speak. They're, they're, they're beaming with happiness. Hey, look at this. He says, we sit at Moses' seat. That is correct. Yeah, we have power. We have influence. We have fame. And then he even says, do and observe whatever they tell you. Boy, were they happy about this. They are super excited. But then he says, <laughs> but not the works they do. Oh, and he starts to give reasoning for this. He says, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. In other words, it's backbreaking. It's the idea of it's backbreaking burden here. And lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacrities broad and their fringes long. So the phylacrities where, where they would take a portion of Scripture and they would tie it onto their forehead, tie it onto their arms. Uh, what used to happen was it was a constant reminder to see it. They, they would see the law. They would see these things. And the constant reminder, oh, I need to follow the law. I need to obey God. It's all about God. It's not about me. There was a, I think there was a genuine, thoughtful, good thing that came, that came from, right? But then uh, what they did was they, they would make them bigger, broader, more beautiful. Now it's like jewelry, basically. Uh, these little like, you know, good luck charms, uh, some amulets here. And so they have it all over so they would look good. Uh, wow, they're so spiritual. Do you see how broad their phylacteries are? You know, it's like, it's like the whole word here, you know. Uh, that is, they're kind of showing off. Uh, then their fringes. Now, this was a command of Scripture to have these fringes, and it was blue. Uh, the idea was, well, it was just a reminder, um, not to get into the, the weeds here a little bit, but it was a good reminder, basically, uh, of all of the law of God and, and, and who God is, His glory, uh, shining like the bright blue sky. Uh, so it's that blue fringe, that kind of a thing. And so, but they would make them real big, make sure everyone sees, look what I got, you know, I'm, I'm extra, I'm extra all about the light of God and things, you know, um, it, just kind of needless things. Verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feasts and best seats in the synagogues. The idea of that first place, the, the top seat. Um, this is what they love. They love it. This is, it's not about worshiping God. It's not about relationship with God. It's about having that honor and fame, reputation, looking good in front of everybody. Verse 7, what else do they love? And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So people would announce them, you know. Well, you know, you know rabbi so-and-so is here. You know, honorable, great rabbi, you know, who teaches us all good things. You know, there's some, some kind of flowery announcement, and they love it. Oh, yes. You know, I'm about to step into this room. Uh, where's the announcer boy? Okay, here he is. Okay, come on. Yeah, speak first, right? That's what they were concerned about, uh, that, that kind of things. And they love being called rabbi, which, you know, means either, mainly it's teacher. It could also be master. Uh, they often go hand in hand. The teacher's the master. The master teaches, right? So it does go hand in hand. They love being that, having that title by others. But, verse 8, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Okay, so the, it continues on, verse 10, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the idea is you say, well, I mean, we have like a Sunday school teacher. I, I, I do call him teacher, you know, so am I guilty before God? The idea is that when we have a teacher in a Sunday school room, or you know, right now I am teaching you, and you might say, hey, look at our teacher up there. Okay, the, the, the difference is this. I place the authority in the Word of God. <laughs> I place the authority on the person of God. 
And, and I, am, I am gladly receiving correction if, if I am mishandling the word of truth. That's not the case here. These people would take the place of God and say, this is what it means, and they would even add to Scripture their traditions, their, their other extra laws and things. They would add to it, and they would have equal authority with Scripture, with God himself. That was the problem. Uh, and so they were, they were taking an undue place uh, in their lives where only God should have that final authority. Uh, so that's, that's the difference there. And they, and they understood what that meant. So now we start with these woes, okay? So just kind of a recap here. Jesus makes several accusations of the scribes and Pharisees. They preach but do not practice. They are unloving to give unbearable burdens that do not, they do not bear themselves, uh, which is you know, pretty crazy. Um, they, do, they do things to be seen. They love being honored. They love being worshipped. They love being served. So then he comes up with these seven woes. I think very intentionally seven, uh, as it shows a complete judgment. And so he probably could have combined some things or had some other, but it was seven to show a complete judgment. Um, that word woe, uai, uh, it's an onomatopoeia. So an onomatopoeia is the word like buzz, where uh, it is what it sounds like. Buzz, you know, it is. What, so that uai, so it, it means like horrors, woe, horrors. So you think of something's like absolutely horrible, it's like uai, <laughs> you know, it's like, like the expression. It may sound weird for us, but in the Hebrew language, I, I bet it was spot on. <laughs> okay, so then um, he uses this every time, this uh, interjection of grief, this huge, this grief here, and, and just anger uh, mixed together, grief and anger. Um, it has this idea of denouncing this misery uh, and pitying it. So all, all those sort of ideas are in this one word. It, it's actually very uh, complex. Um, but I think just saying woe <laughs> is actually pretty accurate. So, uh, you know, woe to you. Uh, you are doomed. You are to be pitied because of what is coming. That's the idea. Uh, there will be pain. There will be misery because of your actions. This is the consequence. All those things are wrapped up in there. So the first woe, that's verses 13 and 14, the first woe here. He says, whoop, I'm in the wrong place. There we go. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> I love how Jesus does not uh, pull back at all. <laughs> he just all out. He just says it the way it is. I love it. Okay, so just to, to identify this a little bit, tithing mint, dill, and cumin. I've heard some people teach this and go, that's ridiculous. No, it actually was the law. <laughs> that was good. Uh, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You were to tithe every single thing. It's actually a lesson for us even. Not that tithing is not actually a part of our law today. Uh, but giving is, and uh, that'd be a whole other lesson on it, but I think we actually should be giving even more. I think if you actually properly understand New Testament giving, 10% would be a good starter, but then you should give out of your abundance. You should give sacrificially. Uh, we're not limited. We, we can give as much as we want. Uh, it's a gracious thing. That's a whole other lesson. Okay, but the idea is that they were supposed to be tithing off of every single thing they get in, not just this, you know, the, the salary, the, the dollars coming in. Okay, so then he says, but you left out the most important stuff, justice, mercy, faithfulness. They weren't actually just, they didn't show any mercy to people, and they weren't faithful with the word of God. Um, so then he says in verse 24, you blind guides. 
So they are the teachers. They are the leadership of Israel. They are guiding them. Uh, they are supposed to, anyway, supposed to be guiding them in the ways of God, to please God. Uh, overall, to, to not just have that relationship with him, but then to, to increase in the quality of that relationship over time. Uh, they're supposed to be guiding them, but they're blind because they don't even have that relationship with him. They don't even have it. Um, so how are you guiding someone if you can't even see yourself, spiritually speaking, of course? So then he gives this example, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Why would you do that? Because you can't see, you're blind. <laughs> so what, what, what's going on here? They would have, remember, it's, this is the Middle East. It's a, it's a whole lot different. They don't have the conveniences we have today. And so they would have a drink, and uh, they would, they're little gnats. It sounds disgusting, but they would get into that drink, and they could die, okay, or, or at least get trapped before they die. And so um, what they would do is they would take the time to get a sift and they would sift out to make sure all those gnats are gone because they can't have a dead thing. It's against the law. They, they can't have a dead thing. Uh, they would be unclean, right? So they do all of that. But then it says they swallow the camel. <laughs> so the idea is that they're so careful to follow the law to that degree of actually straining their, their drink. But then they miss the whole point. They, they, they actually don't even, they, they, they miss the whole point of the law. What is the end of the law? It's Christ, right? That's what the scripture tells us over and over again. They miss the whole point. So this would be a good time to explain the word hypocrite. So hypocrite, um, if you do a little bit of a word study, you'll find out that it goes back to um, the, 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 the times in Greek culture and things where you would have actors on a stage and they would put a face up, right? They'd put a face on, like a mask. And uh, they, they, that's just the word for actor. So you would be in the, the audience, and you'd say, oh, look at the wonderful hypocrites, you know. And because they were you know, good actors, um, they were acting like somebody else. It was not real, right? So it's that two-faced kind of idea. That's true. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a true thing. But the, the actual um, full meaning of the word goes back further, Okay, so that's, that's just how that word was used at one point in history, but that doesn't give you the full understanding, okay? So it's actually a compound word, two different words put together. The first one means under, and the second one means judgment. So when he says, you are a hypocrite, what he's saying is this, that something has slipped below the radar under your judgment, so judgment is that idea of discerning. You tell the difference between two things. So when they look at the law, they missed the point. It went under the radar. And so the whole point of the law was relationship with God, a joyful life with him, enjoying his blessings, doing his work all at the same time. That's the whole point. They would memorize the whole Torah the first five books of the Bible, they would memorize that whole thing. A lot of these Pharisees and stuff, especially at the Sanhedrin level, they would have the, the large majority of the Old Testament memorized completely, if not the whole thing, especially the scribes. But did they understand the point of it? No. No, they did not. They missed it. There Jesus is fulfilling, literally fulfilling hundreds of prophecies, literally hundreds of prophecies, and they missed it. You hypocrites. <laughs> What's the point of tithing? Okay, it's not just to be, uh, to look cool in front of people. The whole point was to make sure God's work was funded. You missed the point, <laughs> right? 
Okay, so then, uh, so let's, let's move on. So a little extra time in that first one, just explain some things there. Um, so they're, they're actually hindering people from entering the kingdom of heaven. It's an amazing thing there, uh, quite, quite the accusation. It says, woe to you. Did I read? Oh, I read the wrong one, didn't I? I jumped down and read, oh, I'm sorry. Instead of reading 13 and 14, I read 23 and 24 earlier. So I'm, that was probably really confusing to you. I'm sorry about that. Um, it just uh, a slip of that. Yeah, okay, anyways. So now we got a head start on the other one. So, <laughs> so verses 13 and 14. A lot of that still applies, though. So, uh, but what do you, uh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is for real, verse 13. Hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter go in. Okay, so there we have it. Uh, the idea is that they are the ones that have Scripture. A lot of these people did not have the written word. They had to go to the temple or a synagogue to see the written word. Only the really rich people had the actual written word, like in their homes or something. And even then, it wasn't all of it. They just have some scrolls, okay? So they would come to these people, hey, what does this mean? Or, you know, explain this to me, that kind of a thing. Well, they're not entering in. They're not saved themselves. They're not entering the kingdom. And they also would, would hinder, hold back people from going in because they teach them improperly. They teach them wrongly. They don't teach them the truth of Scripture. They don't teach what it means to have a relationship with God, what, what, what that requires, faith, grace, things like that. They miss it all. They miss the point. Um, it's interesting here. It says uh, there, there's some, um, well, I guess I won't, I'm not going to get into that. I'll, I'll uh, no, I will. Okay, so <laughs> there's a kind of a hidden woe here, okay? So some, some manuscripts, different translations will have this here. Um, after, after verse 12 or right here, um, they'll add it to, at the end of verse 14, say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you receive the greater condemnation, uh, which is also mentioned in a couple of other verses. If you're interested, you could write that down, Mark 12, 40. Uh, Mark 12, 40, and then the other one, Luke 20, verse 47. That's where you can see that information somewhere else, Mark 12, 40, and Luke 20, verse 47. So that, that gets added uh, in there. So different translations will have that or not. Um, and so you can think about that, if you will. But uh, the idea with devouring widows' houses, that was a real thing. Uh, what they would do is these, these poor widows wouldn't have any more income coming in. They, they would get in some financial trouble, and they said, okay, here's the deal. I'll take care of you. I'll make sure all your needs are met, and, um, but you just got to sign over everything to me. And so then they would put them in these horrible living situations. Uh, they would take their house. They would take all their property. They would make money off of it. They would get rich off of this. Uh, and they would just put them in like a group house or something where they had minimal living conditions. It was not good. Uh, and so they, they actually were not being loving, and they really just wanted to make themselves rich, but they would try to look good in front of people saying, hey, I'm taking care of widows. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? Uh, so that was actually a real thing. It was actually a big, a big deal there. So woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for doing this, uh, devouring widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. In other words, just for a show. Just for a show you do that. By the way, the only prayer ever criticized in Scripture is a long prayer. That's an interesting thing. That's another, that's another lesson. Okay. Um, so they were, they were totally focused on the temple treasury and the look of religion more than the love of people and the worship of God. That, that's a big deal. Verse 15, you have the second woe here. Verse 15, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. In other words, a disciple, you know, a follower. 
Uh, and when a, he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. <laughs> Strong language there. The idea is this. He's, they, they, they go near and far to find these uh, brightest and best. Now, what did Jesus do? He found basically the rednecks of Galilee. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was 11 out of the 12 disciples. The only disciple that was actually looked like he would make it was Judas. He was the only one that was temple trained. He was the only one from Jerusalem. All the rest were just these bums, these fishermen, you know, from Galilee. So that's kind of, it's kind of an interesting thing. And, but they would go and try to find the brightest and best everywhere, and they would disciple them, and they would, they would be so rigid about the, the, the law and their law uh, and following these things and not actually following uh, God in relationship. And so then that person tries to outdo their master, and so they intensify it. And so they, they become even worse, even worse. They're even more lost. Uh, they're, they're even more um, rigid about rules and things. If there is a rule in the Bible, it is good to be rigid about it, <laughs> but not neglecting mercy, grace, faithfulness, all those other things, justice, which they did. But they would also be rigid about rules that they made up, just traditions, things like that. So they, they really were reproducing evil here. Uh, verses 16 through 22, you have your third woe. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Whoa. In other words, if you go to the temple and you make a promise, you're trying to get things right with God, you go, God, I am going to do this, whatever it is. Uh, if you don't follow through, they go, well, it's okay. Just, just make some sacrifices. You're fine. Uh, but then if they say, uh, if they, they swear with the money, uh, they're, they're actually, it has something to do with them getting more or less money in the treasury. Okay. Then they go, you better follow through. You promised you would give this much money. <laughs> you better do it. They'd throw them in the poorhouses. They wouldn't just say, make some sacrifices, ask for forgiveness. They wouldn't say all that. They, it would be, you better pay up. You're going to jail. You don't pay up, right? So that's, ooh, that's, that's bad. That's not good. They're missing the point. Once again, they're missing the point. And so then going to verse 17, not just blind guides, but you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has, been made the gold, has made the gold sacred? The idea is that the temple was where the presence of God was. It's all about God. It's the temple that is greater. And who is greater than the temple? Remember, Jesus said someone is greater than the temple is here. God himself, right? So you have God. You have the place of God. Then you have uh, the finances of God. <laughs> there's, a, there's a tier system here, priorities. Uh, and, and they got it all mixed up. They put the money up on top. What is a fool? A fool is someone that knows what's right, but they don't do it. They do the wrong thing anyways. You're a fool. You know that the money is not as good as the presence of God, the temple of God. You know that, but they are consumed by greed. Verse 18, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. So more of the same there. You blind men, verse 19, so guides, fools, and men. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. It's not necessarily wrong to make an oath to God, to promise something. I would not encourage it. Ecclesiastes 5 is very clear that when you approach the throne, uh, you better guard the words that you speak. It is better to not make a vow than to make a vow and not keep it. Scripture is very clear about these things. 
God even says, Christ even says in his teachings, he says, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Uh, you know, it's not all about these oaths. The whole point of the oath was you are untrustworthy. <laughs> so the people that say, I promise, I swear, <laughs> when people say that, you know what that means? They're not trustworthy. Uh, if someone was trustworthy, they, they don't have to say that. They just say, I'm going to do this. And people go, okay, great. <laughs> you ever notice that? And so really, it's not, it's not an ideal practice. But sometimes I need an extra incentive to do what I know is right. And so I may make a promise to God. God, I promise I'm going to do this. And it helps me follow through, perhaps. And if I don't, that is a time of confession and repentance, right? And so you, you make that right. So you have to handle that correctly. But they are blind guides, blind fools, and blind men. They misguided people about things and not God. They recognize the gold to be greater than the temple, and they teach the gift is greater than the worship of giving. They messed up big time. We have a fourth woe in verses uh, 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And this is what, we, we already, this is what I thought was the first woe, <laughs> but I'll read it for you again. For you tithe mints and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. And so, once again, they are called hypocrites here, uh, tithing every detail. It's essential under the law, but they're not valuing the attributes of God. They're called blind guides. They filter gnats from the drinks. They don't eat those dead things. They swallow that camel whole. They focus on the details and miss the big point. <laughs> I love Bible study, and you do need to focus on details. Um, but if you focus on details correctly, it only culminates into the big point of the passage. Um, but don't, don't go into all the academic parts of it, but then not look at the whole picture at the same time. Uh, that's that's the, part of the, the piece of the puzzle, so to speak. Then we have verses 25 and 26. This is the fifth woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Uh, well, you know, this is a, a pretty obvious application here, uh, but so essential. They are all about those phylacrities, the fringes. They're all about being seen in the temple with the long prayers in the marketplace, to be announced, to be called rabbi and teacher, to, to be seen publicly doing religious things. This is their goal. It's the outside of the cup. It sure does look good. And remember, God says, right in the beginning of this, Jesus says, hey, do what they say, because they're, they're teaching the law. Um, observe, observe this, follow the law. That's good. You know, the God's commands. That's a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, but, they, but they are missing the whole point. Okay, so then um, we, we come into uh, verses 29 through 36. This is the last part. This is the seventh woe. So this, this is really, I mean, he really hits it home now. Um, it, it's big stuff. Uh, and there's actually, um, I was gonna, depending on the time, I have, a, I have a little bonus at the end of this, but we'll see what time it is at the end. Um, so don't get too excited about leaving. <laughs> okay. Uh, verses 29 through 36, the seventh woe. Okay, here we go. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those 
who murdered the prophets. Wow. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. And, and he goes on with another accusation, but let's, let's, let's understand that for a, a brief moment here. You build, you put lots of finances, work, effort, you give a lot of attention to these tombs that hold the prophets. You're honoring them. Now, it's, I think it's a women of God that have really served. They've been faithful. Uh, God's used them, especially prophets, right? They were the mouthpiece of God. They gave us scripture. That's a big deal. Let's honor that. That's a good thing. That, that's, not, that's not so bad, okay? But they build these big, beautiful tombs for the prophets, but they're the ones responsible for murdering them. <laughs> what in the world? You know, you look at all the prophets. What did Jesus say? He goes, yeah, Israel, you murder every prophet. <laughs> you murder every prophet God sends to you. Uh, isn't that crazy? Uh, I, I, now, that's kind of a, you know, a little bit of a, an embellishment, but you have like someone like Jonah, right? Well, they, they didn't murder Jonah. Jonah was actually their hero. I think until it was, uh, I think it was 2014, perhaps, until then, they still had um, the, uh, the tomb of Jonah out there, and I think it was Samaria, and uh, they really honored Jonah. Why? Read the minor prophet Jonah. He was super Hebrew, right? He was to his own detriment. <laughs> uh, he, you talk about like one of the Pharisees here. Jonah did not love people, and that was his big problem. He did not have mercy. Jonah's all about mercy, and he, he did not have this mercy. He came back as a hero in Israel because he hated Nineveh. He hated Assyria, and he didn't want to do anything for them, and he wanted them to be doomed. He wanted them to fail. He did everything he could to make sure they fail, the sermon he preached to them, uh, at least what's recorded in Scripture, is only five words in Hebrew. That's it. Five words. The most minimalist message he could have possibly have done. He did not want them to repent. Remember, he sat up and he watched the city, uh, and he wanted to just watch fire come down from heaven. And he was so sad that it didn't. What a messed up guy, right? Uh, not too far from some of us sometimes, I think, but... Um, but the idea is that's the, same, that's the same line of reasoning here. These Pharisees are just like their fathers. That's what Jesus is pointing out. You're just like your fathers, the ones that murdered the prophets. He said, oh, I, we wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would have. You would have. And he, you know how he knows it? And you know what the proof is? They murdered Jesus. <laughs> they murdered Jesus at the end. They had him crucified. They wouldn't settle for anything less. They'd rather have Barabbas released. And they wanted Jesus to be not just murdered, cruelly murdered, the crucifixion. Uh, and so then th he knows. He knows that's what they would do. Now, there, there's no guesswork there at all. So then, uh, verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. In other words, you know, you, you, you better stand up to it. You would have. So you, you, you need to admit what you have done, and you need to f uh, have the consequences for what you would do because your hearts are the same. Your actions are the same. So in verse 33, he says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? <laughs> Whoa! Oh, you talk about some harsh words. I love it. Okay, so uh, they're, they're serpents. They're a brood of vipers. And so viper is actually a very broad term. Um, there are over 200 species of vipers. And so some of these we know pretty popularly, but vipers, they attack aggressively. Now, there are some in the family of vipers that are actually pretty docile. 
But that's not what Jesus is pointing out here. He, I, I don't think that's what he is uh, referring to, this, this you know, rare species of viper that's actually kind of tame. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's referring to. Um, but they are known for, largely, they attack aggressively. When they bite, you know, most of them, the overwhelming majority of them, they're venomous. And when they bite, they don't let go. They latch on uh, to, to inject the full amount of venom. And, uh, it, it, yeah, so then they, they, they often lead to painful deaths. I mean, often you will die. Remember when Paul, there was a viper that came out of the fire, and it latched onto him. He wouldn't let go. So then the people of, I think it was Malta, uh, the people there, they, they just kind of watched him to see when he dropped dead. <laughs> and when he didn't, they go, oh, wow, it must be something to this guy. Uh, kind of an interesting story there. But, so they, they don't let go. It leads to painful deaths. So you think about how this applies to Pharisees. Um, as they keep injecting their teachings into these people, they will die. If they really buy into everything the Pharisees are saying, they will not have saving grace. They won't. And it leads to a painful death. And they attack aggressively. You must listen to me. You must, you must hear what I say. Don't listen to anybody else. I don't care what you thought you read in the Torah the other day. You listen to how I explain it. <laughs> Whoa, right? That's how they were. That's how they were. And it's really sad. And vipers, they also multiply quickly. I think that's also a relevant point. Maybe some of this I'm stretching, but I think, I think God had an accurate illustration. I think he, I think he called them vipers for, for reasons. And I think these are the reasons. And maybe there's more or less out there. You can decide for yourself. But they multiply quickly. Remember he talked about they went near and far. They're always looking for those proselytes. They wanted to make disciples, make disciples. Call me rabbi. I want more people to call me rabbi. I'm going to make you just like me. They multiply quickly. So a few popular uh, viper species that you probably have heard about is, you know, rattlesnakes, cottonmouths, copperheads. Those all would be uh, in, that, in that line there. Who, who knows what rattlesnakes, right? Everybody knows rattlesnakes, okay? What about cottonmouths? You guys know cottonmouths? Anybody? Okay. So that's like, uh, like yeah, so I, I know, uh, having lived in the south and uh, in parts of the east and uh, things like that, you have a lot more. One of the great things about living in the north, you have a whole lot less venomous things, by the way. You guys know that? That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Um, down south, everything will kill you. Uh, all the tropical environments and things like that. Copperheads, yeah, watch out. You, you, you look at a snake and you go, huh, it's, its head's kind of a, a rusty color. <laughs> Just run away. Okay. Our policy, my dad always had snakes and reptiles. Our policy was, um, if it's venomous, kill it. If it's not, take it home. <laughs> that was, that was basically, that's basically how it went. So anyways, uh, getting off track here a little bit. Uh, but let's continue on. We're going through verse 36 here. So then we'll go to verse 34. Therefore, because of all of that, therefore I send you prophets. So this is Jesus talking, isn't it? Jesus is taking that. He's no, no doubt about it. He's saying, I'm Yahweh. I've done this the whole time. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, way back when, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these will come upon this generation. And when he says this generation, there's some people that kind of, they disagree on what, what generation is. They say, hey, look, that's just a, that's a, a people group in a timeline, Right. I think there is another application of that word that's not as popular, and it's like you, you, you type of people. 
In other words, it's the quality of that person, it's that type of person, not so much that it is uh, this age of people, not necessarily. So you can think about that yourself but, uh, and check into that. But that, that's, how, that's how I would take it. So you, you type of people here, that's the idea. You Pharisees, you scribes, and people that are like you, and people that follow you. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, death and destruction. And of course there is the, uh, you know, the, there are, you know, the, the Rome came in and destroyed the temple in 8070, stuff like that. But I, I don't think it's just that. I think it's, it's a lot more. I think it's talking about uh, spiritual destruction. I think it's talking about the ultimate eternal torment kind of idea. So Jesus prophesied the coming destruction of these Jewish leaders because they rejected God himself, and that is it. It's all over. You are not under the wrath of God anymore when you, by grace, trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior through faith, uh, knowing what his, his work on the cross did for you. Uh, blood washing away the sin, and his death on the cross taking your place. Checking the time? Okay. So, so here's, here's the other part. I'll just share this with you. At the, just to finish up the chapter here. Okay, it's chapter 23. So verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Matthew puts this here right on purpose. Okay? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, you have to trust in the Messiah. The nation, it's doomed for this time being. But individuals can always trust in God. And it's only the time being, because God still holds true to his Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, there is a future place for the physical nation of Israel still. Uh, God will be true to his promises. Uh, and, of course, the ultimate fulfillment in this is, uh, you can read about the end of Zechariah particularly, but at the second coming, um, th- those that are left, the ones that have not yet died, uh, the remnant, they all look to Jesus in the second coming and believe. Uh, which is amazing. So that at that moment, 100% of the nation Israel right there actually believe. That's a cool thing. So that, that's what, where that happens. So he mourns for Jerusalem. His heart aches for them. And I would challenge you, let heart, hearts ache for people, even like Pharisees and scribes. Did Jesus' heart ache for them? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Sometimes we can get to the point where we read passages like this and we criticize the Pharisee and we criticize the Pharisee and all of a sudden we realize, wait a minute, now I am one. I'm actually doing the same thing that I'm hating. I'm, I'm nitpicking their life and I'm showing how sinful they are and I'm not focusing on myself, <laughs> right? That's the unrepentant Pharisee. We don't want to be like that. What we want to do is we want to come to Scripture and we want to come to a, a place before God where we say, I, I read this and go, man, am I like that? Am I like a blind guide? Am I, am I a blind fool? Am I a blind person here? Uh, am I being a hypocrite? Am I missing the point? What's the point of church? What's the point of life? What's the point of relationships? What's the point of having kids, having a spouse? What's the point? Uh, don't miss the big point in all this stuff. Why do I do and don't do anything? Anything. Analyze everything. Why do I do it? Maybe we're missing the big point. Not in everything, but in some things. There's some times that I, you know, I, I would maybe uh, get really super focused on something I have to do. You know, maybe we, we have to go to this one place on this one day at this one time. 
We have to. And do you really, though? <laughs> like, I got to go get a Christmas tree on this day. If I don't, my whole life's ruined. You know, are we missing the big point? <laughs> you know, just little things like that. We can think about our agendas, our schedules, and what we have going on. And, of course, this leads right into the Olivet Discourse. It's right into the Olivet Discourse and showing that ultimate end to everything. Uh, so don't let things slip under the, the radar. Acknowledge the Messiah in everything. Are we missing the point uh, of everything that we do? Something to dwell on today. Let me pray for us, and, and we, we can be finished here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, being very careful with your words, being very honest and blunt with your words in Scripture, um, how it cuts to the heart. I thank you for it, because if I was not cut to the heart and convicted, challenged by these things, I would not conform to the image of your Son anymore. I thank you for still working with me, still working with us, uh, that you would discipline when necessary, um, that you even give us trials uh, when necessary, and challenges and things. I thank you for that. It shows your love to us. It shows that you are not going to let us just stay in the position that we are in, but you will allow us to be more like you and work in us to do that. I pray that today we would have some uh, good heart analysis, that we would look at our own selves, not look around at others or the political systems or the religious systems or anything like that, but we would just look at ourselves and think, what, where are we at? Are we missing the big point in everything? The big point of having a relationship with you in everything that we do. Whether we eat, we drink, whether we say, we speak, we think, whatever it is, I pray that it would be to your glory, to your honor, and just be in the joy of your presence. I pray that we focus on the hope that is in you, and we think eternally, we're heavenly minded, and uh, that we even look at other people that way, seeing the value of a soul, and the big points of the existence of those that are around us at any given time. We thank you for the wisdom that you give us in Scripture. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.